This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. We continue our series of studies in Exodus, Exodus 1 through 20. We're looking this morning at chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Israel has come out of Egypt. The Lord has brought them into the wilderness for the purpose of beginning to, uh, to test them and to teach them to trust in Him. Chapter 17, verse 1. Hear the word of God. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to your word. We thank you for this this passage that we have read and pray that we would understand it. By the light of your spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. At a glance, this looks like just another passage of Israel's... Uh, spirit of uh, discontent in the wilderness, and it certainly is that. It is another occasion of their grousing and complaining about the circumstances in which they find themselves. But as you look at this passage itself, and especially as you look at it in the light of Scripture as, as a whole, you realize that in many ways this passage is uh, a bellwether passage, uh, something of a turning point. One reason they have arrived at Rephidim, this is really the last stop before Sinai. So they're nearing this initial uh, time of testing, of teaching, of preparation. Remember, don't confuse what happened here right out of Egypt with the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness the Lord sentenced them to when they uh, failed to trust God's ability to give them the land that he promised. This was not a time of God's discipline or chastening as that was, so much as it was just having come out of Egypt, getting to know who God is, getting to know who they are, getting to know God's faithfulness to them. And yet, they don't seem to learn that lesson at all. And this passage really begins to bring that out, so much so that we find this passage echoed 
in a number of other places in Scripture. Now, this passage served to describe their experience, but it's written down for us, God's people, to learn from it. And it's a somewhat dark passage. As we read it, uh, I want us to see essentially three dangers that it warns us against as we uh, look at what happened here. After all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that these things were written down as an example to us. So I want us to learn beware of three dangers that appear here. First, uh, and rather obviously, the danger of testing God. The danger of testing God. Now, God was testing them. God was putting them in some stressful situations to show them that he could be relied upon, that he may not provide exactly when and how they might think, but that he would provide for them. He would be faithful to them. Back in chapter 15, verse 25, uh, we read there that the Lord was testing them. There he tested them, the end of verse 25. Chapter 16, verse 4, uh, with uh, the, the manna and the quail. Verse 4 says, that the, he explains to Moses, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. God was testing them. That's fine. God had just, in a magnificent way, brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea. And he was testing them to strengthen them to teach them. But now, the people were turning around and beginning to test God. Uh, and we see this uh, in, our, in this passage right here, uh, verse 7, because they tested the Lord. And Moses asks them, why do you test the Lord uh, with these kinds of things that they are saying back in verse 2? Why do you test the Lord? Now, what does that look like? How, how are they testing God? How are they putting God to the test? What are they doing? Well, several things that we see going on here. One, they're demanding God's provision. You see that in verse 2. People quarreled with Moses. They said, give us water to drink. Well, who are they to be demanding what God should do? Yes, they were speaking to Moses and Aaron but as Moses already made it clear, they're not grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They're grumbling against God. And when they say, give us water to drink, yeah, they may be speaking at Moses. But they're really demanding of God. Who are they to be making demands of God? Uh, one, because of who they are, what he's done for them and bringing them out. But two, because he's God and they're not. You don't speak to God that way. Number two. Uh, not only are they demanding God's provision, they're denying God's protection. We see this uh, in verse 3. Notice what they say. The people thirsted, the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Again, speaking to Moses, but the implication is there's a problem with, with God's management here. Something going on they don't like. So they say, why did you bring us out here to, to do this, to kill us? Now notice, they claim to be dying of thirst, but they have enough energy to raise quite a ruckus here. Uh, they may be exaggerating their, their condition just a little bit. They have enough energy to carry on with all of this. But basically denying that God's going to protect them, rather that God brought them out to kill them. That's insane. And, and then the third thing in verse 7, doubting God's presence. Because they tested the Lord by saying, 
Is the Lord among us or not? Is he with us? We don't know. Well, they had the, the pillar, you know, cloud, the pillar of fire. They've seen what God had done, and yet they, they're saying, well, is God with us or not? Just because they are a little thirsty, just because they ain't seen as much water as they might, might like. God with us or not? So that, those are some of the forms that this testing of God took. They're being demanding. They're denying that he even protects them. They're doubting whether he's even with them after all they've seen, after all they've experienced, after all that's happened. They're testing God, and that is a dangerous thing to do. In fact, this passage in this event is echoed in Scripture. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy is... Um, a book given to the second generation that had come out that's getting ready to go into the promised land where Moses teaches them once again their history, the covenant of God, who they are, and he warns them against this specific event. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, Moses says to the people, the children now, uh, grown children of those that we read about in our text, he says to them, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. See, this event stuck in Moses' mind. It's kind of a turning point, kind of a, a dire situation. He says, you're not to test God the way they did at Massah. So he warns them against testing God in this way. But we can go much, much farther along in the Bible, go all the way over to Matthew chapter 4, passage I know you're familiar with, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. That sound familiar? Jesus, the new Israel, the true Israel, who is led into the wilderness where he is tested. Kind of an echo or a recapitulation of what Israel did that we're reading about in Exodus. Of course, you know how Satan comes to him and tempts him. And the second temptation, the devil takes him up, shows him uh, under the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. It's written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. What does Jesus say? Well, he, clo- he quotes that passage from Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus is using that in the exact same way. You don't put yourself in a situation where you demand that God serve you, that God protect you, that God act on your behalf. That's what Satan was saying. Go up, throw yourself off. Insist that God watch over you while you do foolish things. Jesus says, no, you don't put God to the test. It's written. Where did that come from? It came from, well, he was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, but of course Deuteronomy 6.16 is referring here to what happened in Exodus 17, the danger of putting God to the test. There are a lot of people that do that. Some Christians do that. Demanding that God act in their way, at their time, according to their terms. And if he doesn't, they grumble, they complain. Putting God to the test. Now, can we ever go to God and say, God, I don't understand. Why are you doing this? Why are you not doing this? Absolutely. But it's in a spirit of submission. It's a spirit in a, in a spirit of reverence for him, not in arrogant, uh, demanding uh, and complaining before the Lord. First danger, the danger here of testing God. There's a second danger that we find here that's also referred to in other places in Scripture. Not just the, the danger of testing God, 
But along with that, and uh, accompanying that, the danger of an increasingly hardening heart. Hardening our hearts toward God. We read this, and we, this, this is very familiar, because it's happened before. In fact, it's happened again and again. Numbers, actually, Numbers 33 refers to a couple stops they made that Exodus doesn't record uh, before they get to Rephidim. So there's more to it than just here, but what Moses gives us in Exodus is enough to see that this is becoming an ingrained, repeated pattern in the lives of the people. Let me just give you a brief survey. Exodus 15:24. Uh, people grumbled against Moses, saying, "What shall we drink?" They'd come to water, but it was it was it didn't taste good. It tells you probably also they weren't dying of thirst. They Maybe it was toxic. Maybe it was just bitter, as they say. It wasn't real good water, and they rejected it. What are we going to drink? And, they, and God graciously provides for them. He makes the water good. Uh, in other places, chapter 16, verse 2, they grumble against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and God provides for them the quail and the manna, meeting their needs. And then in chapter 16, verses 19 and uh, 20, don't leave any of the manna till morning. Eat it all up. Don't leave any till morning. Verse 20, they didn't listen to Moses, left part of it till morning, it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Clear instructions, refusal to obey. And then again, they were told, gather twice as much on the sixth day, on the seventh, don't go out looking for any, take a break, rest. God will provide. That manna that went bad the next day, any other day of the week, stayed good for the seventh day. However... Verse 27, this is chapter 16, verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? So this, this, this repetition, this, this ongoing pattern of, of unbelief, of disobedience, of grumbling, quarreling. And now here in chapter, five, uh, chapter 17, uh, we read in verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses. A little different word than the usual one, grumbling. That just means to murmur, to complain, to grumble. Here it says they quarreled with him. We may not notice the difference. In Hebrew, it's a word that has a little more formality to it. It can actually even refer to court proceedings, legal proceedings. It's probably not exactly what was going on here, but the point was this was more of an organized protest, more of a uh, group uh declaration of their dissatisfaction with Moses and his leadership. And in fact, it had gotten so hot that Moses actually says to the Lord, what am I going to do? They're, they're about to stone me. This is sort of like a mob forming here. This, this more or less formal declaration that they don't like what's going on. They don't like Moses' leadership. They don't like the situation at all. Moses says they're almost ready to stone me. And of course, you go beyond this. And this, this, this whole attitude culminates in uh, when they send the 12 spies into the promised land, and then 10 of them come back with a bad report. Joshua and Caleb say, yeah, they're big, but we can take them with the Lord's help. But the ten, other 10 spies say, sure, the land's good, but there's no way. And they rebel, and they refuse to go in. And therefore, God sentences them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until that unbelieving generation dies off. So you have this, this pattern of increasing unbelief, this increasing hardening of the heart against God, this increasing unwillingness to trust in the the deliverance, the protection, the faithfulness of the Lord. Now, the grumbling, the words, reflects their heart. Now, again, this echoes through Scripture. Turn, Turn over to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. 
verse 8. Remember Moses, Deuteronomy 6, uh, decades later, says, don't test the Lord like you did at Massah. Well, many, many years after that, in, this, in the Psalms, we read, uh, the end of verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Centuries later, what happened at Massah and Meribah was still being held up as a warning to the people of God. Watch your hearts. If you hear God's voice, if you hear God's word, don't you harden your heart against him the way they did. And because of that, they were not able to enter God's rest. And this goes even farther into the New Testament also and becomes kind of the prototype or the paradigm of unbelief. Hebrews chapter 4, book of Hebrews chapter 4, uh, even earlier chapter 3. Listen to this. Quotes from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then verse 16 says, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who'd left Egypt, led by Moses? With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who believed. And so this warning uh, in chapter 3, verse 12 of Hebrews, Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. We read this passage, we say another instance of Israel complaining, but it's more than that. This passage echoes through the rest of Scripture as the example of what it means to have experienced and seen and witnessed the great works of God, and yet to respond with unbelief from a hard heart that expresses itself in this grumbling and murmuring and quarreling against God, against Moses and Aaron. Beware the danger of a hardened heart. Many of you have heard for years the gospel of Christ preached from this pulpit and in other places. You've had held up before you the great and mighty saving acts of God culminating in the cross and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you indifferent to that? Do you grumble against God tomorrow after hearing of God's grace today? Hear the warning of this passage in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 and 4. Do not harden your hearts. Don't be in a position of witnessing who God is and what He does, both through the Word and in the lives of others, and yet grumble and murmur and complain against Him. There's another danger that we hear in this passage as well, and that is the danger of missing God's provision of life. They test God, harden their hearts against God, 
But they also are in the danger of, of missing, and they are missing, what God has for them. Because each time, God very patiently, in the face of their attitude, provides for them. He meets their need. He provides good water. He provides quail. He provides manna. He provides water from the rock. And when that's where we come down here and we see what happens. The Lord says to Moses in verse 5, Pass on before the people. Take some of the elders with you. Take the staff and go and strike the rock at Horeb. It's interesting it says the rock. Maybe this was some well-known feature there, a large outcropping or something. Uh, It just refers to the rock. And he seemed to know which one it was. And water will come out of it and the people will drink. Now, some have suggested a natural explanation that the water was very thinly concealed by some rock that Moses broke with the staff. Um, you know, and the, the providence of God was knowing exactly where to hit it. And that's, that's possible, but it seems to be the whole sense of the passage that this, again, was a supernatural provision. That God showed his power to bring water out where once there was no water uh, as a response to Moses doing something as as Trivial, really, is just hitting the rock with the staff. But again, the staff with which he struck the Nile, that staff that was the symbol of their deliverance, the symbol of God's presence and power for them, Moses strikes the rock, and God provides the water that comes up out of the rock. And he did so, it says, verse 6, in the sight of the elders of Israel. That's a huge crowd. They can't all be gathered around to see what happens. But it specifically says the leaders, the elders, were there to witness God's provision in this way. One of them to have a front row seat to see that God provides for them in this way. But you know, they don't see that. I mean, they witness it, but it doesn't seem to sink in that God will provide, and God has provided. God provides water, and yet the next time they're thirsty, next time the mouth gets a little parched, They're complaining, murmuring against God. But he has provided, and he continues to provide for them. Even that generation under his discipline in the wilderness, he provided for them, continued to give them manna, continued to protect them, keep their clothes from wearing out, preserve them, even while they were under his discipline. They miss seeing and and growing from God's repeated provision of life for them. But you know, this speaks of something much bigger when it comes to us. And this passage is historical, but it is also uh, something of a, a pattern of the Christian life. Well, they were in a literal, physical wilderness. We, too, are in a wilderness, wilderness of sin in this fallen world. Sin, the condition, not sin, the geography. And it makes us thirsty, makes us Hungry, and people try to satisfy their thirst and their hunger uh, by eating and drinking the wrong things. Proverbs 27 7 tells us to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. You know, the counterfeits that this world provides, at least for a time, seem sweet to one who is desperately hungry in his soul. But in fact, the Lord has provided for us the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, this passage is echoed in the New Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul here says a, a pretty astounding thing. 
10 verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, 1, he says, For I want you to know, brothers, our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What do you mean the rock was Christ? Well, the rock wasn't literally Jesus. But the rock was a symbol of God's provision that ultimately is, is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were, uh, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The rock, he says, Paul says, was Christ. Well, in the scriptures, God is often depicted as a rock. And in fact, in Psalm 95, passage we read earlier that, that says, don't harden your hearts, it begins uh, in verse 1 with describing God as the rock of our salvation. That's intentional because it's referring back to this event at Meribah and at Massah that took place. Well, here, in keeping with the imagery, the rock is a symbol of God and a symbol of his salvation for us in Christ Jesus. And in more ways than you might think. Like that rock, Jesus Christ was struck on the cross by God's judgment, yielding life for God's people. In fact, that was graphically illustrated by the sword and the spear that pierced his side and blood and water flow out as he's there on the cross as they verify he is in fact dead. He was struck with the judgment of God yielding life for us. Like that rock, Christ flows with the water of life. John 4.14, Jesus says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. That's why Paul says that rock was Christ. That rock was life for them. Christ is our rock. Christ is life for us. But they missed it. In their grumbling words, in their hardened hearts, they couldn't see the abundance, the grace, the goodness, the provision of God at every turn. They couldn't see how faithful he was, how graciously he provided for them. That having brought them out of Egypt, how would he not graciously provide them everything else that they need? So they missed it. They missed the opportunity of seeing the goodness of God and growing by it. More importantly, they miss the experience of trusting in God and finding life in Him. Well, many are the same way today. So busy grumbling against God, so busy hating on God, that they miss the goodness, the grace, the provision that God pours out for us at every turn. Your friends, don't you be one of them. Don't miss God's provision for us in this world, in its wilderness condition because he leads us to a rock a rock that yields the water of life that rock is christ drink of the lord jesus christ believe in him find water for your souls in this arid wilderness you will never be thirsty again let's pray father we are guilty uh, as these israelites were at least at times of complaining grumbling accusing not trusting, not believing, doubting, doubting your power, doubting your presence, doubting your protection. Father, forgive us. We confess, Lord, 
that we sin against you in all kinds of ways out of unbelief. But Father, we don't want to be that way. We pray you would protect us from hardened hearts. Make our hearts soft and warm and receptive. Lord, when we are tried, when we are tested, to trust in you, to wait for you, to look to you. Father, we thank you for Lord Jesus Christ, our rock, who gives us living water, the water of life, water that leads to life for this world and eternal life. We pray it in his name. Amen.